Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Number three is a charm. GM finally signs up with the UAW. Now Sean Fain, the leader of the union, says non-union plants are his next target. Today on the show, workers, mostly immigrants, why are they dying on dairy farms in Wisconsin? And another win for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Welcome to the Tuesday, October 31st edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Maryam Jamil will be our first guest on the show today. She is a reporter at a wonderful publication. ProPublica is her name. They're a nonprofit investigative newsroom, and that's where... People like Maryam report on workers' rights and health inequity. Previously, she was a reporter with the Center for Public Integrity, where she investigated racial inequality in employment, dangerous workplace exposures, and wage theft by federal contractors. ProPublica.org is their website. And we're going to talk about an article that just came out about dairy workers on small farms in Wisconsin, dying. Many of those deaths, here's the crazy part, never investigated. Since uh, 2009, 17 workers died. And let let me read parts of the article here. This happened in uh, 2013, so 10 years ago. On a below-freezing morning in March of 2013, Israel Lepe Quesada was crushed to death while working on a dairy farm. This was in northeast Wisconsin. The owner of the farm had found Lepe pinned between the engine compartment and hydraulic arms of a forklift-like machine. Six years later, another worker was killed when the arms of a skid steer loader, which is another kind of farming vehicle, fell on him at the dairy farm where he worked near the Minnesota border. His last words, according to court documents, were to say goodbye to his family. Then, on one night in March, this is this year, there's one individual, Florencio Rodriguez, drowned after he drove a skid steer into a 14-foot-deep pond, the pond filled with cow manure, from the dairy farm where he worked. When the daughter of the farm owner called 911, she told the dispatcher it was not likely that Gomez survived. She said, usually when you go down, you normally don't come come back up. Here's a crazy part. The autopsy found traces of manure in his trachea. This is sickening. It's really sickening. Again, the crazy part about it, the inspectors in all three cases from OSHA which is the federal agency responsible for workplace safety. They went to the farms in all three cases. They left within an hour without conducting investigations into the deaths. Here's the reason. (laughs) 
It's part of our laws in America. OSHA is banned from enforcing safety laws on farms with fewer than 11 workers, unless, unless one thing, that they have employer-provided housing known as a temporary labor camp. What? It's a heck of a story, and uh, Mary Ann is going to talk about it, and uh, she's going to try to, uh, she's exploring why the laws are the way they are, and if anybody's trying to change these laws. Again, we're dealing with immigrants, and you have to understand there's an attitude, and this attitude has been in this country for literally centuries. Well, if they're immigrants, they're expendable. We can find somebody else. They're lining up. They want to work here. Angel Cantu will be joining us later in the show on behalf of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Angel is the Teamsters Airline Division representative and also Southwest Airlines Material Specialist Chief Negotiator. And uh, we got a win here we're going to talk about. The specialists, material specialists at Southwest have ratified their most recent collective bargaining agreement with the Teamsters. The agreement covers more than 500 workers who provide supplies and other support services to the fleet maintenance team. By the way, this contract is the fifth collective bargaining agreement the Teamsters airline division has ratified this year following two victories at Allegiant Air one each at NetJets and United Airlines. This agreement, it's a three-year agreement, includes a 10% wage increase, which is effective immediately, a cap on rate increases for health care costs, and mandatory 4% company-funded 401k contributions with an additional matching component. Gotta hand it to the Teamsters. They negotiate some pretty good deals. They, like many unions, on a roll this year. So uh, Angel Cantu will be our, our second guest right here on America's Workforce. Now, a brief look into the world of labor. The segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at BoydWatterson.com. Well, the UAW strike at the Big Three is over. Yesterday. The union reached a historic tentative agreement with General Motors that paves the way for a just transition and wins record economic gains for auto workers. And mind you, I say the strike is over. Most likely it is going to stay over. The workers are back in the assembly lines and started last week with Ford and then over the weekend with Stellantis and now GM. They still have to ratify the agreements now. Like the agreements with Ford and Stellantis, GM's has turned record profits into a record contract, according to the union. We're talking gains valued at more than four times the gains from the 2019 contract. It provides more in base wage increases than GM workers have received in the past 22 years. The agreement grants 25% in base wage increases, this is through April of 2028, will uh, also raise the top wage by 33%, compounded with estimated COLA cost of living increases to over 42 bucks an hour. The starting wage will increase by 70% 
compounded with estimated COLA to over $30 per hour. The agreement also kills several wage tiers that have divided the union. That was a very, very contentious issue. And listen to this. For the first time since they organized in the 1990s, GM salaried workers will receive a general wage increase equivalent to that of hourly workers. The deal also brings two key groups into the UAW-GM master agreement at Ultium Cells and GM Subsystems LLC. Both of these groups have been left out of the master agreement and have been told they would never come in. Big change there. Many thought, and this is right from the UAW website, many thought GM would never put more money on the table for their hundreds of thousands of retirees. Well, in this agreement, however, GM has agreed to make five payments of $500 to current retirees and surviving spouses, the first such payments in over 15 years. The agreement reinstates major benefits lost during the Great Recession including cost of living allowances and a three-year wage progression, as well as killing divisive wage tiers in the union. It improves retirement for current retirees, those workers with pensions and those with 401k plans. And like the other two, the GM deal includes a right to strike if a plant closes. Fain says GM workers are returning to work. Well, the agreement goes through the ratification process with the UAW National GM Council convening in Detroit to review that agreement. That should be happening uh, this Thursday. All three, all three of the big three now have a tentative agreement with the UAW. All three agreements break records and better unite our union. So now what? Well, UAW has its sights set on organizing non-union automakers, especially in California and in the South. We're talking Honda, Tesla, Nissan, Hyundai. Recent organizing efforts in Tennessee, Mississippi, and Alabama have proven unsuccessful, but that was under different leadership. Fain says these historic contract victories may drive Southern auto workers into the arms of the union. And he said, next time we sit down, it won't be the big three. It'll be the big six or the big seven. We'll see what happens here. Striking union hotel workers in Pasadena have reached a tentative agreement with Lowe's Hollywood, marking the third hotel to reach an agreement after four months of work stoppages. The latest hotel employs 300 members of Unite Here Local 11. Both Lowe's representatives and the union leadership celebrated the agreement, which is a tentative agreement. Local 11's president, Kirk Peterson, called on the rest of the industry to follow suit and share their prosperity with workers. By the way, this win for Local 12 comes just days after reports of hotels hiring unhoused migrant workers to replace striking staff. Well, guess what? The Los Angeles County District Attorney, George Gascone, has now opened an investigation of whether county hotels who are in this conflict are using 
or have been using homeless migrants, minors, asylum seekers, and refugees as scabs. This is what uh, he said. We take these egregious allegations with the utmost seriousness. The mistreatment of vulnerable workers and their exploitation will not be tolerated. We will conduct an exhaustive investigation working closely with Unite Here Local 11 other stakeholders to ensure strict compliance with labor laws and protect the rights and dignity of all workers. Now, many of the workers being exploited were being housed at the Union Rescue Mission on San Pedro Street in Los Angeles. The exploitation by the hotel owners is not the first abuse that they have suffered. Gascon said exploited people originally crossed the U.S.-Mexico border in into Texas seeking asylum. Well, they were picked up by Texas law enforcement under the orders of the governor, bus to Los Angeles, and then left there. So that's where the L.A. hotels came into the picture. Unite Here told the D.A. the hotel bosses hire agencies to contact and recruit the migrants for jobs without telling them who they'll work for or how much or how little that they'll earn or that they're being used to try to break a strike by fellow workers, many, if not most of them, workers of color. At least one minor was recruited to work in a hotel, thus missing school, violating federal and state laws banning child labor. Sebastian, a refugee from Venezuela, told Local 11, I entered a situation where I didn't even know which agency was hiring me, how much I was going to earn, how many hours I was going to work, much less my rights as a worker. (sighs) Unbelievable. Unbelievable what's going on in America. Anyway, I have to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about what's happening to immigrants, specifically on a dairy farm in the state of Wisconsin. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Iron Workers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. 
There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And don't forget, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go to line number one. Joining us from Illinois today is Miriam Jamil. Miriam is a reporter at ProPublica, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. And as I indicated at the top of the show, they do incredibly good work. And I will tell you right now, we need good journalism in America because the media has been under attack for a number of years. And newspapers have lost a lot of staff over the years. So it's important we get the the correct information out there. And we got a heck of a story to share with you today about what's going on in dairy farms in Wisconsin. Mary Ann, thanks for joining us. Why don't you get a little uh, background on yourself? I always like to, especially when we have someone new joining the show, to find out uh, who you are, how you got to where you are today at ProPublica. I understand nine years now. In uh, in journalism, let's uh, let's talk about what got you in this field. Is this something? Was this a passion when you were growing up, or what? Go ahead. Hi, thank you, thank you for asking. Thanks for having me here. Um, I yes, I was lucky to go to a public high school with a really good journalism program. There was one of the elective classes they offered was in journalism, so you can kind of get a sense of what that even is. I think a lot of people at that age don't. I certainly didn't have a sense of what that looks like as a career. It's not one of the things that, at least in in my circles, was widely talked about as a possibility. Um, and then they also had a good news magazine that that one could start to write for and edit for and so that was something I uh, dipped my toes into and I really liked and that made me want to apply to journalism schools um, for college and so that's what happened and then I, I stuck with it. Um, I, I knew I was somebody who was maybe more into to writing than, than kind of like a math science type field and I wanted to do something that would be something beneficial to people. That was the intention. So um, journalism seemed like the avenue. ProPublica.org is a website. You definitely got to check that out. So you uh, you were educated at Northwestern, which is definitely one of the best journalism schools in the country. And uh, you've been with ProPublica for, what, four years now? Is that right? Yeah, a little over four years. Time has flown. So how did you stumble on this story? Let's get into it. This is, this is a heck of a story about the dairy workers that are dying on the farms. And unfortunately, OSHA kind of has their hands tied on this whole situation. But uh, talk to me about this. And, and I, I, I mentioned a few of the people that died, but this had to be troubling for you as a reporter to dig into this. Can we, uh, can we get into that? 
Yeah, of course. So so to your first question of how we stumbled into it, I've been working on this series with my colleague Melissa Sanchez at ProPublica, who has been really interested in looking into the world of, of labor on dairy farms for a couple of years. And then thankfully, we, we partnered up and, and started digging together. Um, so one of the kind of obvious places to look is OSHA inspection files, because um, when somebody dies, OSHA is supposed to be notified even if it's on a small farm. Um, ideally, OSHA is also being notified um, for certain types of severe injuries. The category, mean, the category they call severe injury, you're supposed to notify OSHA over, as maybe many of your listeners know, um, is when somebody loses an eye or if somebody's hospitalized overnight or if somebody's amputated. Um, and so it's kind of an obvious place, like first place to go for, for records that that will exist on harm on workplace-related injuries and deaths that have happened on farms. Um, the reason I say it's like an obvious sort of bare minimum is because um, a reason we were really interested in looking into dairy farms is be- is, is that we know it's a uh, field that's really under surveilled. There's barely there's very little data on injuries that that take place on dairy farms. A lot of them are small, they're under 10 workers, and so um, they're not going to be inspected regularly. And I should explain what that means. So in, there's something we call the small farms exemption that I keep referring to with this under 10 worker number, or under 11 rather, 10 or fewer. Um, and that is something that Congress has written into OSHA's budget since 1976. So basically every year Congress, tell, Congress um, dictates that OSHA cannot use their funding to inspect farms with, te- with 10 or fewer workers unless they have something called a temporary labor camp. Um, so these farms are still supposed to go uh, to, be, to be following OSHA regulations, but they can usually pretty safely assume that an OSHA inspector is not going to come and do a review of their farm, um, find kind of faults in, in safety and, and issue fines. And the same thing happens when somebody dies. So there are these records that we were able to to pull on these different deaths. And then what, what really made us want to write this story that we thought maybe could contribute kind of to the conversation, to the, the, the politics around small farms and farm safety, is that we noticed that OSHA in Wisconsin had actually been in, uh, inspecting small farms sometimes. So we were like, wait, what's going on? This is the same federal law they're following, but sometimes they're finding a way to inspect small farms. So we wanted to, to really dig into that uh, because it's not something we found, it's not something OSHA is doing consistently. It's not something they're doing nationwide, but if they were to kind of apply the sort of technicality that they applied to Wisconsin nationwide, there are a lot more farms that would potentially um that would potentially be inspected, which could mean more more safety for 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 farmers and their employees. Um, and then another thing you noted was about about these people who died and how how heavy it is to to really delve into this material and, and into who these people are. I think I will say my my colleague and I really do we we, we cry a lot when we're doing our reporting, but um, because it is really heavy. But I also wanted to say it was really really nice for me to like get a chance to learn about who these folks were and the people whose deaths we really investigated more thoroughly. Um, we talked to family members of theirs. We got to know, you know, what they liked, what their personalities were like. Um, 
and it's especially notable in these cases to be able to do that for me because like these are immigrant Spanish speaking workers uh, who spent all their time in, when they were in the United States um, working on these dairy farms. Like for for folks who don't know, like dairy farming isn't a nine to five job. It's it's really people will usually work at least 10 hours a day in two five-hour shifts, but they're very odd hours. It's very common to be working like, let's say, like a like a 9 to 2 a.m. shift and then get up again at 7 a.m. It's a, it's a weird lifestyle. Um, and people often are living on site, on their farms or nearby. They're not allowed to have driver's licenses if they're undocumented, which um, the, the, the vast majority of, of employees on dairy farms who are doing milking and cleaning are undocumented. So um, all that adds up to, um, like, this this last death, uh, the recent one in March, it was a very tragic uh, kind of gruesome death. And um, there wasn't a single article written about what happened, even just kind of daily news covering that, you know, there had been a, a farming accident or something basic like that. And when you Google these individuals, like, usually nothing comes up. Um, sometimes maybe, like, the funeral home page will come up um, with, like, a, you know, just, like, a date and time for their for their visitation if they had family nearby. Um but it's it's a big difference between when we Google them and when we Google the uh, the, the American-born workers who who I think often are able to to receive a little bit more kind of dignity and, and the proper sort of attention that the ones should get when they die. So it was really meaningful for us to also try to try to learn about them and and then write about them um, in a bit more of a personal way. Have any of the families spoken up? Or or they keep it quiet because we're dealing, as you indicated, some of these are undocumented workers, right? You know, I would say, like, spoken up. So one of them has issued a lawsuit that we're aware of. There's uh, And to, to give a broader scope, um, it's 17 workers that we identified that have died since 2009 on Wisconsin dairy farms. The majority of these were immigrant workers. Um, it, it's fairly safe to assume that, that most likely um, all or most of them were undocumented, but we did not, uh, we, we did a deep dive on a few of them, so I don't have that for sure. But the majority were immigrant workers, and then um, a decent portion, maybe like a third, were American-born workers, it seems. And so as far as speaking up, that's a really interesting question. So one of the ones we did a deep dive on did file a, a wrongful injury lawsuit, I believe, or a wrongful death lawsuit, sorry, early in the morning where I am. And um, that is still pending. There hasn't been a conclusion. But I think a lot of people in this situation, a lot of family members in this situation are not very likely to to do anything, um, to, to get any kind of uh, – if ju- justice is a weird word, but to get any type of justice in that way, right. um, because for a few reasons, like for instance, we spoke with a sister of somebody who who died in 2013, um, and and sh- I think what what she explained to us and her feeling is something that's a pretty common thread. Like, so sheriffs usually come and investigate, and their documentation has been really helpful to our reporting, but they're not investigating um, kind of beyond um, like 
some basics about what happened usually. Like they're looking basically to see if this is a crime or if this is something that would be considered an, an accident from a legal perspective and whether they can close close the case or keep looking because this is something that, that um, is their responsibility to investigate as a crime, as a murder. And, it, 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 you know, nothing has turned up in these cases indicating that, it's, that it is a murder. So the case gets closed. Um, so anyway, so that's what happens. These are all folks, like many of us who are, you know, from here, we haven't necessarily dealt with an emergency like this until we've, until the moment comes. And so you don't know the procedures. Um, so basically she, she, she was like, you know, he died, and then there was silence. I think sometimes people expect something else to happen because this tragedy, that's something that seems also kind of unfair because it happened to them while they were working. Um, it's like somebody else to kind of approach them or reach out or, or I don't know, something else to happen, but, but it doesn't happen by itself. Usually you have to file a lawsuit if you want to kind of further that conversation and get compensation. Um, a lot of, speaking of compensation, a lot of workers die on farms where the farmer does not have workers compensation um i think otherwise um they would be they would be receiving maybe a, a, something by by way of a natural process that's in place but um in wisconsin you do not have to have workers compensation if you have five or fewer employees on a farm i believe um and then yeah and we've seen uh, at least one case where the, the farmer just doesn't have workers' compensation anyway, even though the farm is a little bigger than that. Um, so, yeah, and these are also families who are far away in, in, in Mexico and in Honduras. And and basically, I don't think people are very well well positioned to, to do right. to do something, right. for, to ask for something. Yeah. And, and also, like, to note, like, the reason their family members were all the way in the United States was to was to work and to, to earn a higher wage that would support people at home. And so often people are also dealing with a, with a notable financial loss um, when someone passes away in the U.S., a relative of theirs. Mary Ann, the picture that you're painting here today on the show is very, very reminiscent of what happened back in America, especially before unions back in the 1870s, 1880s, especially in the steel mills. I've been doing a lot of research into steel mills. My family, a number of my family, including my dad, worked in steel mills, and the conditions were horrible. And on a daily basis, someone would uh, would get killed on the job, and uh, they would give them like $75 to the family, for, and that included burial and everything. And that was it, and they just moved on. And that was a time when there were a lot of immigrants coming to America, so... It's sad that here we are, 2023, and we're talking about this. I got some more questions I want to ask you. Miriam Jamil joining us on our live line today. She's an engagement reporter with ProPublica. Great publication. Do check out this story, ProPublica.org. Dairy workers on Wisconsin small farms are dying. Many of those deaths not being investigated. We'll talk more about that. And these temporary labor camps. That one really caught my attention. Angel Cantu will be joining us later in the show on behalf of of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, chalking up another labor win. Back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. 
The men and women of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Layuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Layuna at Layuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylights and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at CWA-Union.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always, always appreciate those five-star ratings. And they seem to be coming, so I guess we're doing a good job here on America's Workforce. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, ULAgency.org. In fact, Dave Meganhart, who is the executive director, will be joining us on the show tomorrow. Right now, we have a reporter, an engagement reporter, as they call her, from ProPublica, wonderful publication, nonprofit, investigative journalism. That's what they're all about, ProPublica.org. Mary M. Jamil joining us on our live line today talking about what's happening in Wisconsin. 17 workers dying on dairy farms in 14 years. And OSHA pretty much has their hands tied because they can't investigate unless unless they're in a temporary labor camp because some of these folks are not housed. If they're not housed, then they don't investigate the accident. But if there's some housing involved, then they can investigate Mary, you expl- unwind this one for me. I- I'm a little, and I'll tell you, when you say labor camp, that's scary in itself. Can you pick it up from there? Go ahead. Right. Okay. Thank you for asking. <laughs> we, um, you know, but this is kind of part of the reason we, we wrote the story to begin with, but we also were like, wow, we really am going to be, we're really going to be asking people to join us in the weeds of, um, <laughs> of policy here. Um, though we think it's important. So the temporary labor camp, it does have a bit of a stark name, but we, it basically means um, housing provided by an employer, but 
not every housing provided by an employer is a temporary labor camp. So I can't give you like a straightforward definition because OSHA hasn't really, OSHA will disagree with me here, but OSHA hasn't really settled on like one straightforward definition. We see them deciding that a temporary labor, kind of applying different parameters, I should say, to what a temporary labor camp is at different times. Um, But to give you real life examples of what I mean, um, in Wisconsin, we noticed that after four of the deaths that were on farms with 10 or fewer workers, so again, those are the farms OSHA usually would be barred from inspecting, um, they kind of brought in this this last little bit of the small farms exemption that says unless there's a temporary labor camp, and they were like, there's a temporary labor camp here, so we're going to inspect. Um, now... In there's there's times that are not on dairy farms. There are farms, there are work settings where this isn't kind of controversial or in a gray area. Um, H2A workers um, who are like seasonal workers, often doing like crop work on on farms, um, they are here with a visa called the H2A visa. That is temporary for a set limited period. They have to be provided housing by their employers. Um, and because of that housing, then OSHA has jurisdiction in that setup because of a temporary labor camp. So that's like a straightforward thing. Now, on this dairy farm, on these dairy farms, um, it's very common in Wisconsin, in Vermont, in New York, um, some of the, the main dairy states aside, of, aside from California, it's very co- common for farmers to be providing their workers housing either on site or nearby. Um, they're paying for it. They're not charging rent. It's um, my colleague and I have reported very closely in Wisconsin, and it's kind of one of the things that keeps people coming to these farms from employment. For from what I can tell, it it the farms aren't necessarily paying more than like a McDonald's or a factory or something. But when they are also including free housing, it kind of makes that wage stretch a lot further, and it takes care of the fact that. They can't drive freely. Like um, it, it also helps when somebody's kind of a fresh immigrant, which a lot of the a lot of employees on dairy farms tend to be more recent immigrants. Not always, but um, but sometimes that's where more recent immigrants go. So you can imagine, like if you have um, housing provided at the same place as your job, it, it kind of simplifies things. So there's incentives for the workers. There's incentive for the farmers. It's a very common setup. Now OSHA in 2009 started saying that these are temporary labor camps, even though this isn't a visa kind of temporary in an official way with a limited um, employment time worker, because um, I'll give you the 2009 example. So in 2009, um, a man named Candelario Zacarias Rayon, he was an immigrant from Veracruz, Mexico, the eastern state of Mexico, um, he worked on a farm in western Wisconsin in a small town called Elmwood. And this farm only had five employees. And one morning, he'd been there for almost two years, um, he was driving a skid steer, which is a kind of vehicle used on a lot of farms to use in construction. They basically use it to, um, in, in this case, they, they use it to, um, like, clean out manure. So there's hundreds of cows. Each of them are doing, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, like 50, 60 pounds of manure a day. It's a lot of manure if I don't have that figure right. Um, 
And so there's a lot to clean. And so it's someone's basically full-time job to be, it's a couple people's full-time job to be working on cleaning out this manure. Okay, so he's driving yeah. the vehicle, kind of pushing the manure into a big open, like, manure lagoon, they're called. Sometimes they're called manure pond. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a big pond that looks like it's full of mud, but it's full of manure. Manure is very dangerous. It's hard to get out of because um, it's very slippery. Um, I think this, uh, this, this pond was quite deep also. It was, you know, um, more depth than, than the height of a person or the height of this machine. And so he's scooting this manure off of a platform with the machine. And the platform is supposed to have a guardrail. It's a pretty easy fix, but it doesn't have one. And so he and the machine go too far in, and and he he drowns. People don't notice he's gone for a little while, not that many, not that much time passed, maybe 15 minutes, and then they're looking for him. They don't see him on the machine. They see they they start like prodding the manure, suspecting that that's what might have happened, and they find the machine and they rescue him, and he's or they rescue the vehicle, and he's inside, and he's dead. Um, this is a farm that and I know this level of detail because the sheriff's office did a more thorough investigation than we've seen on other farms. They had an interpreter. Um, the local firefighter spoke Spanish, and so they were able to really, like, interview other workers, which almost never happens, um, where Spanish speakers are interviewed in these investigations. Side note. And then also I know this level of detail because OSHA did a thorough investigation, um, cited the farm for, for nine different things, um, you know, find the farm, et cetera. But normally OSHA wouldn't have been able to go on this farm. That brings us back to temporary labor camps. Um, these workers were housed on site. Basically, OSHA came up with this. I, I believe they're, I don't know who came up with it, but OSHA was implementing this questionnaire to kind of help them determine, is this something we can count as a temporary labor camp or not? And so some of those things were, is the farmer providing this housing? Is the location of the housing um, making it convenient for the farmer to have work around the workers around the clock available. Can these people easily leave the farm? Do they have cars? Do they have licenses? That type of thing. Um, and a few other questions that kind of add a, that kind of add up in summary when the answer is yes to all or most of them. Uh, to a group of people who essentially like live on a farm who don't really have anywhere else to go, who are kind of there at the convenience of a farmer, which is very similar to the, the setup of a, an immigrant worker who has a, a visa. Um, but in, within, sorry, dairy, the dairy industry, there really isn't a, a visa for most of these workers that, that they can get. And so it's a really, it's a really especially unregulated sector when it comes to, to labor. So, so that was, these OSHA employees, and it went to their higher-ups. It's not like it was a rogue inspector. It was, you know, higher-ups were approving this and giving inspectors to go ahead. Um, uh, but OSHA basically interpreted this temporary labor camp uh, clause to allow them onto farms. Now, that's that we saw that, and we were like, that is really meaningful because most of the time OSHA is arriving on scene after a death when they're informed and spending 
less than an hour in Wisconsin. I think in other states they might do even less, but they do do like an interview and, and create some documentation of what happened, which is which is meaningful. But they stay less than an hour consistently. They leave. There isn't really an inspection. You don't know. Like, for instance, there was a very similar death this March where somebody drove into a manure lagoon and drowned. Um, his death was not inspected. And like there are so many questions around what actually happened from an occupational safety perspective, what type of barrier existed, if any. Um, anyway, so basically if they applied this consistently, it seems like a lot more dairy farms, small dairy farms would be under their jurisdiction in multiple states. Um, in Wisconsin, they did it repeatedly but not consistently. So we've seen at least five cases where, where this happened. There's four deaths and one injury complaint. Uh, but even within Wisconsin, it seems like the, well, we don't really know, but it seems like the, the communication wasn't there. Something leads to a lack of consistency in how these deaths are inspected or not inspected. Well, I've been saying on this show that OSHA's hands have been tied. They've done a great job in some circumstances, and uh, they're they're not funded as to where they should be. And you pointed that out early on in the interview and how they crafted the legislation back in uh, actually recrafted it in 1976. And then there's some in Congress, you're probably aware of this, that would like to see OSHA go away altogether. So it's very right. sad. And the other part of the story is immigrants, well, they don't matter. You know, we can find some more. They'll be replaced. And I'm sure that's happened on many of these farms. But Maryam, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, let's uh, Let's stay on this topic and others. I'm sure that in your profession, there's a lot more. There's a lot more we don't know. We don't know, and that's where ProPublica comes in. ProPublica.org. So, thank you so much for sharing your story, and keep doing the great work that you're doing. Okay. Likewise, thank you so much. Take care. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Angel Cantus with the Teamsters. He's going to talk about a win at Southwest Airlines. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Layuna. Find out what it takes for Layuna to keep America running at Layuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to 
to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. Hi, this is Liz Schuler, president of the AFL-CIO, and I am a huge fan of Flash and America's Workforce Radio and Podcast. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And, of course, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to Houston, Texas right now. And joining us on our live line is Angel Cantu. Angels with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, teamsters.org, national website, one of the many proud sponsors of America's Workforce. And Angel serves as a representative of the Teamsters Airline Division, and he is the chief negotiator at Southwest Airlines Material Specialist, which we're going to explain on the show. He's been a Teamster for 25 years. Angel, welcome to America's Workforce. Thanks for uh, joining us today. My first question to you, and congratulations on this. We're seeing a lot of labor wins. We like that. We like to report on those, and there's been plenty here. But what what are the material specialists at Southwest Airlines? I'm going to let you pick it up from there, brother. Go ahead. So the material specialist is uh, is a group that basically deals with all the shipping and receiving uh, for all Southwest uh, merchandise to, um, for the entire company uh could be maintenance could be anything else okay all right so uh you had some bargaining here with southwest so can you be specific uh, I, i'm hearing pretty good wage gains i mean we're hearing good uh, good wage gains all i mean you guys did great with ups uh maybe not as good as ups i don't know can you fill me in go ahead no, we didn't do quite as well for uh, as UPS, but we actually did excellent for our group. Our group has uh, has got a leading industry contract right now with a ten percent ten percent increase in wages. We've got them a four a four percent uh, match for their or a mandatory four percent match for their four hundred one k, as well as securing their their uh, job scope. Now, I was reading earlier that uh, there were a couple of victories at Allegiant Air and then one each at NetJets and United Airlines. I'm just wondering, did that kind of pave the way? And I bring this up because I'm sure you followed what happened with the uh, with the big three auto workers. You had Ford, Stellantis, and then obviously we had the agreement with GM yesterday. I'm just wondering... Did that kind of set the tone, set a pattern here, in your opinion? It did. It, it did. Uh, it, it, you know, all these victories definitely help help our, all all our groups. Uh, once you have one, then you kind of use that to to get more uh, for other work groups. Uh, the UA planners that uh, got a thirty eight percent ahead of their peers at American and Delta. Um, you know, so anything that we get, we use to try and get. Uh, the industry moving to, to get everybody a better contract. Angel, I have to ask you too. I know there's been some change in the leadership of, of Southwest. And I've had this conversation with the, uh, the transport workers union because they were working hard to get uh, a, a better deal out of Southwest. And, and this is a very profitable airline. They've, they've had a few hiccups, especially during the holidays last year. But I'm just wondering with that management team, and you've been at this for, for a number of years, was it more difficult this time? Did they understand what the, what the union was trying to accomplish? 
I will tell you that the, the leadership at Southwest, like, like you just mentioned, has changed dramatically. Uh, the people that I used to deal with years ago have done retired or moved on, and it is a different, more corporate environment uh, with, uh, with them now where uh, you do have to educate them, I guess, on, uh, you know, what, what we stand for or what we try and get for our membership. Now, the airline division, and obviously you've got leadership with Sean O'Brien on the national level, were they, um, were they very much involved in getting a good deal? I mean, did you get a lot of help from them, from, from the international? Well, definitely, definitely. We have nothing but good things to say about that. They, they are supportive of us 100%. Anything that we need or ask for, uh, they are there uh, to, uh, to support us. Uh, and uh, it, we we couldn't ask for better leadership. This agreement, by the way, covers more than 500 workers who provide the supplies and other support services to the uh, fleet maintenance team there. So there's a lot of happy campers here. So can you can you tell us what's next here? I mean, there's there's a lot of wins uh, with with labor here. I'm just wondering who do you have your uh, what, what's the next target here in in well, the airline hey, division? Uh, I'm glad you asked that because. Uh, from getting this done, we are right back at negotiations with the flight sim uh, specialist, uh, which are the uh, uh, people that take care of all the flight sims for all the pilots at Southwest Airlines. So we will be uh, getting right back into negotiations with that group uh, in the next uh, couple months. Okay. So they, uh, they, those negotiations have already started, or are they about to start then? They are about to start. We are uh, trying to get... Uh, dates and, and, and everything scheduled to, to start that negotiations. That's great. It never ends, does it? I mean, you, you got one victory, but you got you got to go to the next one, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's one right after another. And like I said, uh, we are actually looking at uh, coming in uh, early as well with them, hopefully about 90 days before the ratification of the vote. Well, you know, this is your time. You know that. I mean, there's organizing yep. going on. The Teamsters are doing great with organizing. There's strikes like they haven't been in many, many years. Uh, congratulations on the UPS deal. You know what's happened here in the auto industry. I mean, we're, we're talking good things happening, right people in Washington. So you might as well get it while you can. Is that pretty much the attitude right now among that, the ministers? We are working our butt off trying to get as much as we can right now because it is the it, it is time. Uh, I think uh, people have, you know, the the economy the way it is, people are starting to, to understand that they need help getting uh, better wages, better secure jobs, uh, just just all the way around. They need unions out there to, to help them. There you go. And you got America's workforce to nudge them a little bit, too. All right, That's buddy. Right. Thank you so much. Teamster.org is the website. We're talking 120 years, founded in 1903, believe it or not. You take care. Keep up the great work. Stay in touch, all right? Thank you, sir. All right, that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, the United Labor Agency, and we'll tell you about a new study on manufacturing. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.